0: Welcome to the Zeitgeist 19 curated podcast, exploring the spirit of now through the lens of art and sustainability. Your hosts are Farah Pirie and Elizabeth Zhavkova. Today, on this International Women's Day, I have the pleasure to meet security and humanitarian expert Professor Benedetta Berti the Head of Policy Planning in the Office of the Secretary-General at NATO. After spending over a decade researching non-state armed groups, Professor berti speaks about the issues of addressing the many layers of security and offers new approaches to better understand and tackle modern conflict. Hi Benedetta and thank you for being here with me today, it's an honor. You're a foreign policy planning chief at NATO and a security researcher. Recently you have published La fine del terrorismo, the end of terrorism. I wonder um, how can we build more peaceful and resilient communities? Thank
1: you. Uh, so that is a very, very good question. And I would say that um, over the years I spent um, I spent, and I continue to spend today my current job a lot of time really trying to think about how do we address these issues of security um, in a broad way and really think about how to build more resilient communities, societies, and ultimately uh, Citizens, uh, I would say that it's a it's a very difficult question because, of course, it depends. Uh, it depends what type of uh, what type of threats and what type of challenges we're trying to to address. Uh, but in general, we. Would- For me, the starting point is that security has many layers. And first of all, it requires us, and this is the job, for example, I'm doing at the moment at NATO, it's thinking about the big security challenges. So those that affect our countries and uh, and how to secure ourselves. So this means looking, for example, at international terrorism. It means addressing cyber and hybrid threats. It also means thinking about how do we preserve the stability in, in this case of the of Europe, which is of course the Euro-Atlantic area, which is the focus for NATO. Uh, and then to me, when we think about threats to our countries, we also have to think about the importance of preserving uh, the international um, order, the international rule-based order. So that means preserving. Uh, our commitment to respect international law and to preserve the institutions that, that guarantee our freedom and security. But I would also say that security is broader than just looking at our own countries, and we need to look deeper at our societies, at our communities and our citizens. And in that sense, the prism, the, the issue that is really that I'm passionate about is, is human security, which basically says securing our countries is not enough. We also have to be uh, safe and strong communities. And to do this, there's two types of uh, issues we need to address. One is freedom from fear basically means that we need to ensure everyone has a basic level of personal security. And that means, uh, first of all, the ability, and that means, of course, protection from terrorism, but also from crime, but also from uh, from abuses uh, coming from states or non-states. So one element is, of course, security of the people. Um, The other element of human security is called freedom from want. And basically this means that it's essential for, for to have personal and community security um, for a community to thrive, but that's not sufficient. We also need other things to build sustainable and peaceful communities and those have to do with economic development, with political freedom, with uh, like, with accountability, with the rule of law, with good governance. And only when we really invest in all these different dimensions, we can have viable, sustainable and peaceful communities. So I believe that looking at security through this broad prism and lens can really help us um, in building ultimately more peaceful communities, which is what you were asking me about so that would be my answer that really we need a whole of society approach
0: in these critical times what are the main agents during global humanitarian emergencies i think that's that's a
1: very important point and uh, at first i talked about how do we build uh, more resilient communities and societies um, but the the other coin The other side of that debate is what do we do for countries, societies and communities that find themselves in the middle of uh, open conflict, harmed hostilities and um, instability and violence. And unfortunately, if we look at the war today, there's uh, more than a few such contexts. And of course, the one that I've been studying more closely in my career is the civil war in Syria, which uh, serves as a powerful example of uh, I would say massive um, human rights violations and the pain and the devastation of war. So in that context, in the context of ongoing armed conflict, it's incredibly important to ensure that communities that are vulnerable receive the uh, protection and the humanitarian assistance that they need. Um, so today, today, when you try to see who is on the field who is providing humanitarian assistance so it's who's delivering much needed aid to people in the middle of emergencies you will have a very broad field from the, of course international organizations uh, under the un umbrella to local uh, to national governments uh, helping through their um, through the humanitarian through humanitarian funding and programs. But then it's also really important to, to recognize that when it comes to um, helping communities in the middle of conflict, A lot of the help is actually done by a lot of the work, a lot of the hard work is done by those communities themselves. So when you think about humanitarian action, it's really important you also think about local actors, local NGOs, local communities, local civil society. And again, the civil war in Syria is a great example of that of seeing how in the middle of conflict and in the middle of violence you had still a lot of ordinary citizens and civil society coming together to try and cope with the crisis by offering medical assistance by offering education by really trying to to be a positive uh, to play a positive role in those communities so it's important when you think about humanitarian actors that you really think broadly and don't just look uh, at the international and uh, uh, global north um, actors but you also look really at the i would say uh, communities and individuals affected by conflict and you focus on how they cope with with their challenges and as much as possible it's important to to support them in those efforts because uh because uh, locally owned um assistance and reconstruction and development is more sustainable
0: in the long run thank you benedette um there is a lot of misinformation about terrorism out there Um, and i would like to ask you how is terrorism and profitable businesses interconnected. What are the hidden sides of violent groups and uh, what are the means of fighting the complex big picture?
1: That's a great question. And I think that it's really important to to look at when you think about terrorist organizations, it's really important to not just focus on understanding their role when it comes to violence, but also to ask questions about how do they pay for that? right? So the question of financing is very, very important because ultimately uh, we know that the groups that have been most uh, devastating, the groups that have been most lethal, those that have been most able to inflict harm, such as Al-Qaeda or ISIS, those are the groups that have also had more funding and more resources at their disposal. So you're correct in in thinking about how do we better understand um, the financing and the financial aspects when it comes to terrorist organizations. And I think what is important to understand is that groups like ISIS, for example, which everybody knows, so I'm gonna use that, are multifaceted when it comes to how they make money. So we may think that well, terrorist organizations only make money and only create, generate funding by uh, committing crimes or being involved in in illegitimate businesses. And that's uh, only part of the story, meaning it is true that those groups do have ties with crime and we have plenty of example of terrorist organizations that make money by Uh, creating alliances with criminal groups and being involved in activities like drug trafficking, human smuggling, and uh, weapons uh, smuggling. So it's definitely true there is a strong connection between terrorism and crime. And that's very true, for example, in, uh, in the Middle East and North Africa in general, with, uh, with of course, different cases, depending on which groups we're talking about. But I think it's important to understand that that is not the whole picture. Groups like ISIS make uh, in, make money, first, not just by engaging with, um, with criminal organizations, but also by... Uh, trying to to be involved in legitimate businesses and that's where you were you were referring to when you talked about uh, the relationship with businesses over the years we've had many examples of the of terrorist organizations that have built um, legitimate businesses as a way to generate revenues and you don't have, as this is not the first and will not be the last, many decades ago the IRA was involved in uh, running CAC, running a taxi business or a transportation, uh, transportation industry. So uh, many of these terrorist organizations also do invest in creating legitimate fronts through which they can fundraise and then of course it's very important um when we think about terrorist organizations again like isis they also make money by um well now of course with the, with their territorial caliphate having been um having been destroyed they are not able to do so anymore but when they did control territory and population they would also make money by t- by uh, extracting revenues from the population, in other words, by taxing them and trying to tax uh, things like, um, trans- like movement of people or um, asking for for protection money for the people uh, that lived under areas in their control. So the picture I'm painting is very complicated, and I guess what we need to take home uh, from this description is that. Terrorist organizations have a very um, sophisticated ways to finance their activities and that leads them to be involved both with crime but also with profitable businesses and also, with, uh, and also trying to control population and extract
0: resources. Your efforts in the field are really impressive. Often the word security and defense are associated with men. Can you please tell us more about your role as a woman in the defense space?
1: I'm um, sure I mean I think you are you are correct that when it comes with defense when it comes to the field of security and defense it still tends to be you still tend to have more men in the room and certainly more male voices and this is especially true when you think about those uh, who are taking decisions. So at the more senior and decision-making level, there is still an imbalance. Um, That to me has always been very evident. I've been working in this field, either in academia and now in in an international organization, but I've been one way or another working on this for 15 years. And I've always found or often found to be less well represented as a woman uh, I don't think that, I think that, however, having said that, I think the trend here is a positive one in the sense that I do see, especially in the past few years, a rising number of women in the room. I also see a rising number of women in leadership position and the organization uh, where I work now. NATO is no exception. And I've been looking at the data here and see that really there is a good improvement when it comes Uh, Not just to hiring more women, but to having more women in senior positions. Um, So there is a good trend. I think it's important that we do more. And I think the reason why it's so important is because um, decisions that we take on foreign policy and on security and on defense, these are issues that really affect everyone. So we need to make sure that those that make the decisions are representative of our society as a whole. And our society is diverse, of course, and it makes a lot of sense uh, to have men and women equally represented or represented in a way that allows for this diversity to be reflected in decision-making. There's also a lot of data that shows that uh, the more diverse and inclusive your decision-making process is, the better outcomes. The better the outcomes. So I think that's another case why it's really important to to include women more in uh, in decision-making processes. For me, it's always been um, a privilege to be able to work in this field, and uh, and the and and I and I think that I think that the more I can do personally, and I try to to do that to. to to mentor and to encourage uh, young women to, to do, uh, undertake a career in uh, foreign policy and security, the better, because I really think that our field will be um, better, that will make better decisions once we are more inclusive. So I think it starts with all of us really trying to bring more people on board.
0: Thank you, Benedetta, for this inspiring conversation. You're one of those wonder women really do change the world and make it better.